Welcome to the Financial Independence Garage, where we give you the tools to repair your finances and unfold the roadmap to financial independence. Well, here we are. It's not quite the weekend yet, but it might as well be. I feel like it's time for beer. What do you think, accountant? Well, I was already drinking one when you asked me that, so that seems fair. (laughs) What are you drinking tonight? Uh, I got a Tiger Shark. Oh, a little Phillips Brewery. Yes, sir. That's not unique on the show. We've had that a few times. Well, that's because that's what my fridge is stocked with right now, and we're in quarantine, so I don't have a lot of other options. Yeah, fair enough. I Luckily, the one liquor store that's close to me, they're really, really good. There's only like two people in the store at once. It's a small store. They've got hand sanitizer right when you walk in, so I've been fairly safe there doing a maybe a once a week or once every two week buy, and I actually found a Collective Arts beer, which is from Ontario, which Perfect. is appropriate tonight because our guest is in Ontario. So I'm yes. drinking Life in the Clouds, and it doesn't have on a blurb on it, but it is a double dry hopped IPA. And uh, with that, our Ontario guest, welcome to the show, Peter. Hey guys, thanks very much, and uh, appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Uh, great to chat with you again. We kind of been talking about this back and forth for a while since we met last uh, summer at Camp Mustache 2019, which was a fantastic event. And you gave a couple talks, and we're going to dig into those tonight. So you know, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, maybe just run down uh, for our listeners who you are and what you're about. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Peter Gallant, and uh, uh, on the uh, internet, I blog very infrequently from a, a website called ProfessorFire.com, uh, and that's because I'm interested in fire, but also uh, on my own fire journey. I'm actually a university professor right now, and so uh, I have a continuing what they call a continuing adjunct appointment at uh, Queen's University in Kingston. So I teach in the business school at Queens. Uh, but that's my, my kind of permanent part-time gig. And so uh, I'm following essentially what, what they call the Coast Fire, Coast FI strategy. And so a bit of my story, I'm in my early 50s. So uh, I'm not the 20 and 30-year-old uh, uh, discoveries of, of fire. I went, uh, uh, I've been at it a little bit longer. But one thing to point out is back in the Maybe I graduated in the late 80s from undergrad, and then I went and did a master's and a PhD, so I've kind of done all those things. But, but in the 90s, um, we didn't call it FIRE, but around the entrepreneurial communities, we called this solving the LMP, the lifetime money problem. And <laughs> I so, like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that, that always kind of fascinated me uh, because a lot of the entrepreneurial circles that I was running in, running a couple of startups at, at the time, uh, were entrepreneurs that were building tremendous value in their companies. And, uh, you know, their vision was to make enough money from that enterprise to solve the LMP, uh, which is now what we translate to full financial independence. And you build up enough of, of that uh, stash, as, as uh, Mr. Money Mustache calls it, and then you could live off the proceeds essentially forever. So, right. uh, yeah, so my kind of ex- initial experience with FIRE was, was more from the entrepreneurial side. Ran a, a first startup, failed, and you know what? Still survived and learned a ton from that first startup and, in fact, was able to take some of the residual capital from my first startup and fund a second one. And every one of my angel investors from my first startup actually invested in my second. And so I promised them that if I was going to fail again, I'd have to fail in some new and creative way that I hadn't done before. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> yes. Right? So that was, my, that was part, of, part of the deal with my investors um, to do that. And so second startup was a, a technology to detect bacteria in water in the wake of the 
Walkerton, Ontario uh, uh, water tragedy where uh, six or seven people were killed and, and thousands were made ill by contamination of the water. And so to make a long story short, we took technology spun out of the university. We funded it. We built a company around that. We raised angel and venture capital. And it wasn't a, a rapid growth. It wasn't one of these instant overnight, you know, super successful, high value exits. But we ended up selling the company to the world's largest environmental services company. And so, yeah, and it wasn't a retirement level event, but I learned a ton because I now I'd seen the whole cycle and yeah, so that was pretty cool. And then at the same time, I was teaching courses part-time at Queens, either engineering courses because I have a PhD in in electrical engineering, but I also started teaching in the business school. And so after I uh, sold the startup, I stayed with the group of the acquiring company for five years. So I managed projects all over the place, Europe and uh, UK and Germany and France and US and, and Canada. And so got a got a view of the big corporate world too, from going from a 20 person startup to a company of over 300,000 people. That must have been really insightful to see that whole transition. Wow. wow. Yeah, it really was. And so um, uh, did that for five years and then uh, got an offer I couldn't resist to go and run the province of Ontario's innovation accelerator for the water wastewater sector. And uh, did that as well as, as did a little bit of teaching. So it was a busy couple of years. And that couple of years got me well-established based on some historical investments, plus being able to dramatically up my savings rate with you know solid primary income plus pretty decent side hustle income. I was able to up my savings rate to 60, 70, 80% of, of income. And you don't have to do that for very many years to get yourself a decent percentage of the way down running the ball down the field towards fire. Yeah. yeah. Right. The traditional thinking is you save half your income. You're, you're probably fire in, in 15, 16 years. So now I'm about 50% to, you know, the traditional fire concept of like 4%. Don't do anything else. Just right. live off the interest, right. Or live off the pros, not the interest because you're invested mostly in the stock market if you want to draw 4%, but, uh, but just live off the proceeds. So that's kind of where I am now, about 50% to fire. And I adopted what's a, a coast five strategy. I love it. Which is don't work full time. Yeah. Right? yeah, that's, that's my key phrase right there. Coast fire. Yeah. Don't work full time. And you do talk about that on your blog too, is about being passionate about doing the work that you want to do. And I think yeah. that's, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. So that really speaks to me as well. I've had a 20 year career and I'm, I'm ready to change and diversify and do other things. And, and uh, do it on my own terms. So I can totally respect that. And I think it's something that maybe changes in people as they get older, or as they've done a career, or maybe done multiple careers, or like yourself, entrepreneurship, you know, these things change. And for a lot of people that are really young, in their 20s or 30s, starting on the path to fire, they're just, they just can't quite recognize what their future life or future self is going to look like and what they're going to want to do down the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the things I noticed at Camp Mustache was, and you guys mentioned it on your podcast when you kind of did an event review of, of uh, Camp Mustache last year, September of 2019, was the, you know, the wide age range of people who the FIRE community really appeals to, the FIRE message. And we had people there from their 20s all the way up to their early 60s. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, one of the impromptu sessions. So I, I signed up. I, I like to, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professor, right? So I like to be able to put a pull the groups together, talk about stuff. And uh, so I did post on the impromptu session board, hey, let's go and meet at the top of this really cool tower overlooking the, the lake at this children's camp where the, yeah. the venue was for this 
for Camp Mustache and said, hey, anybody who wants to go and talk about Coast 5, let's go and meet there. And I think that's where I met you guys, but it was a really yeah. popular session. There was a lot of people who wanted to look at strategies other than work like hell, save like hell, save a tremendous percentage of your income for 10, 15 years, and then transition to the 4% rule. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, and how many people have you heard that have saved like hell, gotten to that point, pulled the plug and been like, I'm still making money. Why didn't I do this way earlier? Yeah. And that's one of the two, that's one of the two responses that I've, I've encountered in the fire community. One is, wow, I, I kind of regret having saved up the full 25 times my expenses because yeah. uh, all of a sudden I'm, I didn't stop working and do nothing. And in fact, most people who are pursuing fire are not of the mindset or the psychological makeup yeah. that they're going to go and, and do all this and then stop and do nothing. And that was me, right? I was like, it wasn't, it wasn't the idea of not working anymore. That's what, not what was appealing to me. Yeah. It was being able to do my best work and to free myself up to do my best work without the constraints of all of the bullshit wrapper that, that comes around a whole bunch of, of professional roles. Yeah. Yeah. No, very well said, you know, couldn't really, you know, it's, it's been summed up many times with so that uh, wraps it up quite nicely. The other, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The other topic that you had planned when we were at Camp Mustache is actually what uh, we're going to be the main subject tonight. Yeah. You presented a really good PowerPoint in your talk there, and it's going to be really valuable for the listeners of the show that at this point, if they want to pause and scroll through it and then come back, they might get a little bit more out of our discussion tonight because we're going to talk about the risks of fire. And we found it really interesting because the simple math is there. We all understand that. We all kind of get the basics of the fire movement. But yep. how many of us are stopping to make considerations for what future our future life is going to look like and what are the potential risks and pitfalls of our particular strategy? Now, this isn't going to be – we're not going to do an analysis on any particular strategy because it's going to be personal for everybody. But it's important that we need to factor in some of these things that are risks now and down the road, and especially now with what we've seen happen in 2020. This was – and. <laughs> Nobody saw this coming. So let's jump into you know that PowerPoint that you wrote, and I'll let you lead us off. You are the author and expert. Uh, I believe the accountant and I have it open, and we've we've done a little bit of our homework. We're not the best, <laughs> we're not the best students. I feel like we're trying to talk to our professor here today. So uh oh, <laughs> that's okay. Remember, I didn't look up your transcripts before we got on the call. So that's okay. okay, perfect. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Someone caveat to that. One, one is I'm probably not going to going to go through the whole presentation. I no, 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 no. That's fine. And, and pull out some highlights, but also. Yeah. Second of all, just as a, as a caveat, I put this together. I was originally just going to do this as, a, as another impromptu session. And the organizers came up to me and said, hey, Peter, you know, I uh, uh, really like the Coast Fi. If you've got some stuff you'd like to present, you know, you can use the projector. You, you can use the indoor uh, part of the facility. And so this, this PowerPoint deck was created in about, in about 60 minutes right before I gave the presentation. So uh, it was done on the fly. Yeah, no, I, we were. I remember sitting there near you while you were working on it. And I thought, yeah, 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 fantastic. Was and well, it, yeah. it fostered a lot of discussion, which I thought was really valuable. Right? You had that, us do, yeah. bit of, you had us do a little bit yeah. of group work, and we had some interaction, and that's what made it yeah. for me a valuable session. So, what, what I like doing about the, what I like doing these types of sessions is, you know, it, it really helps my own learning when I'm kind of playing with a topic in my head. 
and I'm playing back to a group of students or, or, or a group of like-minded people, you know, I'm playing back what I get and what I don't get and what I'm grappling with a little bit. So I think this kind of presentation reflects that. But if we, we kind of dug into it a little bit, you know, what I'd say is, is the first thing is anybody who's seriously considering FIRE, so the whole financial independence retire early thing, I think there's a lot of kind of skipping over some of the key assumptions behind FIRE in the exuberance of, as you said, <laughs> once you yeah. see the, you know, the shockingly simple math behind early retirement, which is a, a Pete Adney, Mr. Money Mustache uh, blog post, which is quite famous. And as Brad Barrett from Choose FI says, you know, once you've seen that, your life has changed forever, right? He yeah. said that in the yeah. Playing With Fire documentary. So yeah, the, the problem is, is that you have to start unpacking the assumptions that live on this idea of being able to save up 25 times your expenses and then draw on average around 4% of your portfolio forever, right? For example, that assumes that the underlying 25 times stash of money is not invested at 0.5% in a, in a guaranteed investment certificate. That, that strategy would fail. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it has to be the underlying has to be invested properly. The ability to draw your four percent, you know, you can make some adjustments for for uh, inflation, for example. But four percent may or may not be a safe withdrawal rate under certain conditions. And so there's a, there's a lot of that underlying understanding that I was worried that people who were new to fire jumped in, started their savings rate, started investing, started building it up, but then hadn't thought through kind of the assumptions that were built underlying the fire concept. And at the same time, at the same time that we're pursuing fire, we're also living, breathing, walking people who are also going to be exposed to a whole bunch of the normal risks that we all face where yeah. not financial independence doesn't make you immune to those risks. Yeah. Right? It's not some sort of magic immunity bullet that says, hey, nothing bad's going to ever happen to me once I hit this utopian 25 times expenses. Exactly. And to add to that, one of the other problems, not only have we got this house of cards around the assumptions behind fire, we've had up until March, <laughs> whatever, let's call it March 15. That's the date that I use when I've given some of my business presentations in the school about what's going on with COVID. But up until March 15th, we had 10 years of fairly benign conditions, right? We had low interest rates, easy availability of credit for all of your, and if you interview people around, you know, being able to cash out house equity and go and build a real estate portfolio. Yep. Uh, we had reasonable employment prospects. In fact, the U.S. Uh, was approaching essentially what in the U.S. is full employment. Mm -hmm. We had a, a constantly rising housing market, except for a couple of maybe, you know, a little bit of instability in some of the super high cost of living areas. And people who have joined FIRE and started their investing journey after 2008 have not seen a major downturn. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> now, you know, newsflash, we're all still <laughs> hunkered down uh, in, uh, you know, in self-isolation in COVID. Now this less than micron diameter virus has propagated throughout the world and it's killing people and it's killing economies and it's killing jobs. And the risk profile of every single person on the planet is now different. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And including, for the most part, the risk profile of fire people, except 
it's interesting because when I'm, you know, talking to other people in the fire community fairly, fairly often these days, some of the people who are best prepared to weather the COVID pandemic and this, what I expect to be a, a multi-year recovery phase are actually some of the best positioned people on the planet to weather this challenge. Well, what, what better position to be in than a high savings rate, a high yeah. flexibility and a, you know, a stash. There's, there's no better position to be in, really. Yeah, yeah. If you look at, at people like uh, Justin McCurry, who I hired as a consultant a number of years ago when I was investigating fire, he blogs at Root of Good. And you have people with extremely low expenses. You yep. have people that in many cases, but not in every case, have paid off their primary mortgage. So they've got a very low personal burn rate. They've got five or more years of cash to fund the next five years of expenses without having to sell one share of anything. And they've still got 25 or more times, maybe even 50 times their annual expenses in their stash. And they're not having to draw anywhere near 4%. And in fact, they're probably in some cases, as you guys mentioned, still making money from side hustles and things like that. Yeah. And you make 10, 20, 20 grand a year in side hustles but your expense base is only 25 or 30, your safe withdrawal rate is now half a percent or 1%, right? I mean, yeah. you're, you're as bulletproof as you're going to be of anybody in this economy. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right? So, so those, well, I just mentioned, just to get back to kind of on track of the presentation, so those economic macro issues affect everybody, and now COVID has added a whole new layer of challenge onto that. And then on top of that, we've all got the micro issues that we all face as individuals that are specific to our lives. How stable is your individual job right now, pre and, out, yeah. pre and post COVID? Well, How stable is your marriage or relationship? Again, pre or post, pre or post COVID. COVID. <laughs> 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 this, this interview could have been vastly different than three months ago or, you know, today. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah, it really could be. How stable is your health? Again, pre or post COVID, because if you, you know, you may be encountering some long-term health effects if you or, or, or somebody close to you has, has contracted COVID. Uh, and you've also, individuals may have unique challenges or commitments. For example, uh, I've got uh, two kids. One's halfway through the University of Waterloo, but it's a co-op program, and he's basically going to fund himself. He's not going to graduate with, with any debt. He's going to graduate with 100 grand in the bank. Um, nice. But uh, then my daughter, uh, a year and a half ago, at, uh, at age uh, uh, 10, was accepted into Canada's National Ballet School. And that's a significant financial commitment that makes university look like a walk in the park. Uh, and that's I over, can only imagine. That's over middle and high school. Right. Uh, so, uh, so again, so how do you deal with those individual challenges? So everybody's got a personal set of circumstances for which the generic concepts of fire have to be reviewed in those in that context yeah exactly and that's that's the thing where we keep this you know this discussion gets per every show we do we get back to always the same thing is oh hey uh personal finance and fi is personal right but yeah you know you're right and i think what's happened recently has probably given a lot of people pause to reevaluate because what we assumed right because we're talking about some assumptions here too what we assumed 2019 or the beginning of 2020 when we're all making our plans for the year was that our jobs would be stable, that our, that our health would be stable, that our family's health would be stable, right? I mean, these are, those are the kind of risks that we run 
with the fire plan if those those unexpected dealing with some sort of family emergency or things like that so yeah yeah i think this is a really worthwhile discussion because a lot of people are going to have to revisit some of their original assumptions yeah absolutely so that's where it goes to kind of risk management 101 right right and for people so i have a private pilot's license so i have for and i have for since the mid 90s so i've always thought of risk in fact one of the most informative courses i ever took in my university career was a first year course where we studied engineering disasters. And the space shuttle had just exploded two years before. That's how old I am, <laughs> dating myself, right? And so, you know, we, we looked at that from a risk perspective. And one of the accident investigators from Transport Canada flew down in his own Cessna and said, hey, you know, I, in that time that I was flying, I experienced a certain level of safety. It wasn't as safe as sitting on my couch, but it maybe was safer than something else I could be doing. Going grocery and, shopping. Yeah, well, yeah, now it's like <laughs> Mad Max, right? To go grocery shopping these days, right? It feel, you feel like you're going out as the road warrior or something. But, but uh, from that perspective, it, it's true. It's crazy. But, um, you know, so we're all going to have a certain level of safety. And it's up to us to determine what appropriate level of safety we think is acceptable. And so we start talking about, you know, in the, in the presentation, I talk about a risk assessment matrix where you look at, you plot essentially the severity of a risk, what could happen if it, if it comes true versus the probability of that risk coming to. And the problem is, geez, I wish we could have a crystal ball and zip back a couple months in time and say, hey, yeah. by the way, this virus is going to go and take over the world. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's going to be a whole new level of risk that none of us even contemplated. Yeah. It's interesting if you place that onto that assessment matrix because oh, you're like, it's it's critical or catastrophic, but it's highly improbable <laughs> or remote, right? So it's in that kind of, yeah. that that section where you're like, wow, that's a tough one to to plug tough in, to right? It's in, yeah. it's in a serious or high risk section, but you know, you yeah. have to accept that there are these black swan events and you've got to be have that as part of your plan. Yeah, but one of the problems is... Yeah, I'd have to put this on such a, I'd have to create a new box in this yeah. matrix for, you know, COVID, right? This is, it's far off, far and away anything we'd, we'd ever thought of. But the other thing is, is that as people, and I've caught myself doing this too, even though I'm pretty careful at risk management, even like for flying and stuff, is we tend to dramatically underestimate the possibility or the probability of that happening. Yeah. Right. And yeah. now, especially when we're all supposed to be, you know, power of positive thinking type people, you, you may simply dismiss those fleeting thoughts of, oh, my God, what happens if this virus, you know, gets out of China and, and infects the entire world? You dismiss that sometimes as like, well, that's kind of negative thinking. Right. And it's an it's an unhelpful thought. Well, in fact, it would have probably been a little more helpful for me to have thought a little bit about that more, you know, a couple months ago. Yeah. So. Uh, people tend to underestimate risk and they Big tend time. not to say they don't think it's going to happen to them. That's always in my business. What I'm always trying to do with our owners is listen, I understand that we don't want to say the worst case scenario, but let's plan for the worst and hope for the best. Yeah. And there's two types of, of risks and failure modes that I talked about at Camp Mustache. One was what I call single point of failure. Yeah. Right? You're, you're, here's your life and all of a sudden divorce or a major health scare 
or your cryptocurrency account gets vacuumed <laughs> by hackers. <laughs> it happened to one of my students. I said, did you think keep the thing in a cold storage vault? He's like, no, I didn't do it. So like, okay, so lost money. But so, the, you know, one single point of failure can, can still, you know, impact you and throw you off balance from a risk perspective, right? Yeah. Um, but then you get into what we call in, in flying and aviation accident chains. So you get into a series of what look like relatively innocuous problems and failures, one after the other, and they add up, the risk is building up, but then all of a sudden, you don't take action while the risk is, is building up, and as we call it in flying, you fly yourself to the accident site. Yep. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, luckily, all the years I've been fixing helicopters, that's never happened. But yeah, I, I, know, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I've, yeah, you, you can you can imagine. You, it's, the example would be, uh, you know, in most aviation accidents, it's not just one thing. It's not like the wing all of a sudden falls off. No, it's the landing light indicator light burns out, and mm-hmm. so the crew of a of a airliner is focused on trying to make sure that landing light comes on and make sure their landing gear is down yet they fly into a cliff or, or into a mountain, right? So control flight into terrain. So it's not just one thing. And so that's where I think, you know, risk when you're looking at fire, you look at those single events, but then you also look at what combination events of events could really have an impact on you, mm-hmm. right? And if you're looking at what's going on in COVID now, somebody's lost their job, but that's not the single point of failure. The market's down and all of a sudden, if they, they lost their job and they got really scared when the market dropped 35% before it recovered and had the best month. The S&P's had the best month it's had in a decade as of, <laughs> as of the date of recording today. But yeah. If you got scared out of the market at that point, you locked in 35% losses. Yep. And then all of a sudden you come home and there's a notice from your bank saying that they have reduced your home equity line of credit or your unsecured line of credit. They're demanding repayment because of, of, of a credit risk issue. You know, that's coming, I think, for, for some people too. So all of a sudden, you've got a whole bunch of risks coming in at you. Yep. And that's, that's, that puts you in crisis. Yeah. And I think you using your aviation analogy, because I'm familiar with that as well, and what we call it is, is situational awareness. Yep. Right, and it's situational awareness. It's not the one thing that you see that's going to bring you down. It's the the many factors that you need to be paying attention of all of it at the same time. Because yeah, we get kind of a tunnel vision, and just like you said, you're focused on one thing and you're not seeing the whole situation. So yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, and so it's not to belabor the flying example, but my next slide on the actual deck, if, <laughs> yeah. if the audience was looking at it, um, last February I was visiting my son who was at a co-op term in, in San Francisco, and I rented a Cirrus SR22. Oh yeah, uh, and that aircraft, I, I have a super experienced instructor with me uh, who knows the, the airspace around San Francisco, which is zany on a good day. And he reminded me, we practiced the procedure to deploy the whole aircraft parachute, the CAP system. And uh, it's amazing that this class of aircraft, every one of them is equipped with a handle right over the pilot's head that if you pull it, it deploys a parachute and recovers the whole plane. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yet this aircraft has one of the highest, when it first came out, had one of the highest fatal accident rates. <laughs> Why? Because people weren't pulling the parachute. People, yeah, yeah they, they don't were, correct. They don't take action. So they were at a risky situation. They were in a spin. They were, and in the Cirrus, that's the spin recovery procedure. 
or they were in some other disoriented situation, they've lost their situational awareness, they didn't pull the parachute handle. And the equivalent to that in FI is, are you going to execute your risk management plan when the risks are happening? Right. Right. And the big underlying assumption of all that is, do you have a risk management plan? (laughs) That's an important factor. (laughs) Do Do you have a written plan? Can you say, okay, I've thought about, here's my FI plan. And it's not just, I'm going to save up 25 times expenses and retire and do nothing. That's not a FI plan. That's a, that's, that's a dream, you know, yeah. written on the back of a napkin. But yeah. when you really start to, to unpack that and you really start to think about what you want FI to look like in your world and what you're going to do to protect your FI plan, then I think you need a written risk management plan around fire. And it's going to outline the macro and the, the, the individual specific risks and what you're going to do about it. And, you know, an example of that real quick is uh, investing. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of great work done at Choose FI recently uh, about building your own investor policy statement personally. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be invested in this type of asset. Here's my asset allocation mix. I'm going to rebalance it quarterly. If the market drops 20%, I'm not going to sell. Yeah. yeah. As JL Collins yeah. says, I'm going to lash myself to the mast and I'm going to ride <laughs> out the storm. Yes. And in the show, in the show notes, you got to put a link to JL Collins guided meditation, the stock meditation. That's or great. When the stock market crashes. Yes. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yep. Everything is going to be all right. You're going to do nothing. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. it. Yeah. So you're going to have, you're not going to panic. You're going to look at the risks objectively. You're going to accept the fact that some of these risks potentially are going to come through and you're going to have a strategy to mitigate those risks as best you can. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's really interesting is people in the FI or fire community are really familiar with optimizing their spending, right? figuring out, you know, maybe whether they're using YNAB or whether they're tracking their spending. Uh, they've got a plan for saving and investing. They've got all that dialed in, but they really probably haven't written much down in the sense like you're speaking with a, a risk mitigation plan of the what ifs. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's one thing to have a plan of, you know, what you're going to do post-FI or if you're going to follow a post-FI strategy, what your life, you want your life to look like as you're, as you're getting there. Because remember, you still have to live where you're doing all the saving. Uh, but then on top of that, how are you going to protect that position? And as you grow, as you mentioned, I'm a huge YNAB fan. I bought it from Jesse when it was a spreadsheet. But as you go through the various steps of FI, so you, know, you build a budget buffer, uh, you build an emergency fund, and then that's all of a sudden turned into FU money. And now you've got a couple of years of savings under your belt that could enable a career change. And then you're heading towards Coast FI. And then you're you know, heading once you've once you've kind of passed the fifty percent mark to to financial independence, the other fifty percent happens a lot faster than the first fifty percent. Big time. But that's also a really critical time to be protecting your overall plan and be able to protect your portfolio and think about risk, right? So uh, from that perspective, you know, one of the things I did at Camp Mustache was I led the group through a group activity. 
And I said, on an individual basis, think about your FI plan. Think about the risks that I just talked about. Rank a couple of, find a couple of single point of failure risks and rank them high, medium, low. And one of the examples I gave you guys mentioned on the podcast from the event before was what was something that could bankrupt you? And for me, it was one of my children developing a critical illness. I would go to the ends of the earth and bankrupt myself trying to find, you know, whatever treatment would, would be possible. So to that end, I insured that risk by having critical illness insurance on my kids uh, all the way through their childhood. And I still do on my, on my, on my daughter. Uh, so from that perspective, what could kind of take you out, you know, from, from left field, right. Yeah. As an individual risk and, and, you know, what could happen. And then going further, then talking, starting to talk about some of the risks that fire people are managing with some pretty specific strategies that at least I hadn't heard of before. Because a lot of the a lot of the discussion in the fire community is around expense reduction and saving and strategies for investment, either real estate or ETF investing or something like that, right? Yeah. And people aren't talking about the risk management piece as much, uh, or in some cases at all. And I want to maybe pass along and, and talk about three different ideas that I think are really a critical part of anybody's financial independent risk management plan. Go for it. So we're all going to go and create a written. We're all going to go and create a written risk plan. We're all going to staple that to the back page of our FI plan. I told you there was going to be homework from the professor. <laughs> I told you we'd have homework. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's valuable. It's valuable. You can't take the bear out of the woods for very long. So from that perspective, you're going to have your written five plan. You're going to staple to the back. Here's my risk plan. And as you get closer to, let's say, we're talking about somebody who's going towards absolute financial independence. They don't think they're going to earn another dime in, quote, retirement. And they want to be able to live off the 4% rule. Um, there'd be a couple of things that could derail that plan. And uh, when you guys interviewed Bob from, from Talkan, he talked about, for example, sequence of return risks. Yeah, You just happen to stop working and go from saving 60, 70% of your income to drawing four. And you happen to do that in a year, which is the beginning of three or four or five negative return years in the stock market. You did that in February 2020. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't seen that it's been a couple of years of negative return yet, but yeah, it could be another one of those situations. But you did that in the early to mid-1920s. You did that in 1967. You did that in in 1991. Yeah. Your plan is not probably going to work as well as you expected. And so there were three strategies that I talked about at at CMTO that I think were, were pretty relevant. One was the idea that right as you come to that early retirement transition point, you may want to reorganize your investments into higher yielding investments. So right now, the average yield, if you were to buy the Vanguard S&P 500 index, yields about 1.6 to 1.8%. So that means every year, 1.8% of the 4% that you need to meet your 4% rule is going to come from the dividend yield of the underlying ETF unit. Yeah. But if I need to go from that 1.8% yield to four, I'm going to have to sell enough of my portfolio. I'm going to have to sell some of those underlying stock units to make up that 2.2% shortfall. And if the markets are falling and I've entered into a, a, a series 
of negative returns, I don't want to be selling into a falling market. Exactly. So instead of that, the first thing you do is you build up a yield shield by transitioning some of your holdings into higher yielding investments, maybe real estate investment trusts, although that may not be a good idea for <laughs> kind of shopping malls yeah. post-COVID not paying their rent. But, but you find other investments that may have a higher yield, but may not have that longer term appreciation potential. And for a couple of years, you're going to try to get closer to the 4% from the yield perspective. So that's the yield shield. The second thing that you're going to do right in parallel with the yield shield is you're going to use a cash cushion. You're going to take part of your portfolio and, and keep it in cash or a bond, not necessarily even a bond, but a, for example, a, a money market fund, something that's highly liquid, something that's not going to go down because when you need the cash cushion, it's because the rest of the market's going down. And you're going to use that cushion to inject the difference between the yield that you're getting from your investments and the 4% withdrawal rate. So let's say you need another 1.5%, even after you've done some yield shield augmentation. You're going to take that 1.5% from your cash cushion. You're not going to sell any of your underlying investments. It's going to be injected from your cash cushion. And if you wanted the ability to do that for five years, you would have five times that 1.5% cash amount built up in your portfolio. But that's only 7.5%, maybe 8% of your portfolio is sitting in cash. The rest of it's still sitting in yielding investments and in, and in, in, in ETFs and the equity markets. So in a nutshell, you could then use your cash cushion to supplement your, your income dividend yield for five years without ever having to sell an underlying share. Now, no guarantees with COVID, but most of the major market drawdowns that have happened over the last hundred years have recovered in less than two years. So a five-year cash cushion combined with your yield shield strategy would effectively eliminate early retirement into a negative sequence of returns for five years. So those strategies are awesome. Yeah, and we should give credit to the Millennial Revolution because they, uh, they've got a detailed write-up on their blog if our listeners haven't heard of them before, but uh, being Canadians, I'm sure they have. But yeah, these are super important concepts to sort of figure out. And many of us that are still in the accumulation phase probably aren't thinking that far down the road yet, but this is all part of what your risk mitigation strategy has to be built around. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, yeah, big shout out to Quit Like a Millionaire, which is the book Bryce and, and uh, uh, Christy wrote. Yeah. And a phenomenal book. And one of the first books that really gave a great treatment of, of some of the risk areas. So full shout out to them for the cash cushion and, and the yield shield. The last strategy that I'd also want to highlight, and they mentioned it in their book, but I think it's been repeated by many of the, of the kind of the thought leaders in financial independence, uh, is this idea of re-retiring or modeling your retirement every year, right? As you go towards your early retirement date, but also once you actually have reached financial independent and quote unquote retired, remodel that retirement every year going forward in a 30 year forward looking window. Yeah. We were talking about that earlier and that came into the whole discussion about flexibility. And yeah, if you withdraw 4% every year, well, 4% has been proven to have a 98% success rate over a 30-year span. Yep. So if I start that every year, it's actually impossible for me to run out of money. I might lose purchasing power, 
because if my stocks drop enough, I might lose, you know, if my stocks drop by 50%, my technical withdrawal there would drop by 50%. But if you have flexibility and you combine that with cash and yield and you know what? It's a really crappy year in the market this year. I'm going to take less money. I'm going to go on one vacation less this year, or I'm going to adapt my spending. The minute you bring flexibility into this whole equation, you can help mitigate a ton of risk. Yeah. I'm not going to blindly draw 4%. Even though the model says I could, if my portfolio is down, I'm not going to draw 4% of the original amount, right? Exactly. The original assumption that the whole model is based on. The other assumption that people may not be aware of is that the 4% rule is based on a 95% success threshold, which Mm -hmm. means 5% of the time over the next 30 years of a simulated portfolio using all of the sequence of returns all randomly jumbled up in what we call Monte Carlo analysis, uh, 5% of the time that portfolio goes to zero. It fails. It goes to zero. That's the critical thing to remember. Yeah. Not just goes down, goes to zero. It goes to zero. So 95% of the time, you still have some money left on the 30th, the the last day of the 30th year of the model. But 5% of the times you have nothing. And if that has happened early on in that 30-year window, you may have some real trouble ahead, right? (laughs) Real trouble. Because you're going to be like, you know, 68 and then all of a sudden, oh my God, I got to go back to work. So we don't want to do that. But we have to recognize that 5% of the time that model is going to fail. And some of us may not feel comfortable we may be happier with a 98% or a 99% or a 100% historical success rate. In which case, as you said, get back to flexibility and bring down that or bring on some side hustle income. Side hustle income has a huge impact. But this train wreck is one of those train wrecks that's going to happen in slow motion. It's not as if you all of a sudden wake up from having a million dollar portfolio and you have zero. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't disappear overnight. It doesn't disappear overnight. This is a slow-moving train wreck that you're watching unfold. And if you're remodeling your retirement every year, looking forward for the next 30 years, and you're seeing your success percentage drop from 100% to 98% to 96%, and you're like, I I want to arrest that trajectory. I want to get myself back up to 100%, then I'm going to go and and think hard about what my risk mitigation plan is going to be that does that. Do I lower my withdrawal rate? Do I go and bring in some side income? Do I adjust my expenses? Uh, And so uh, it's great. It's a relatively simple collection of three tools, right? Yield shield, cash cushion, and re-retiring every year, remodeling that retirement gives you tremendous protection. Fire is inherently a low-risk personal finance strategy. Yeah. And you can choose to accept an even higher level of safety. That's up to you. Yeah. And we've uh, we've kind of discussed on our show before how we feel that, you know, and I, I don't want to go down the whole of the 4% rule because there's been lots going on out there right <laughs> now, the discussion about it. And I mean, we'll get into the nuance of it because people will be chirping us saying, no, it's down to a 3.2 this year and blah, blah, blah. I, Remember, I get nobody the math. actually does. Nobody I get the math. From, <laughs> nobody goes from saving 70% of the income to spending four. It yeah, doesn't I, happen in, in real life. That. We know that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So without going down that uh, road, I, what we said there is exactly that. And a lot of people that are still in the accumulation phase have probably not thought about this side of the, of the hill that you're climbing in the accumulation to the drawdown. 
But the point that we're talking about in the show is understanding the risks that can happen to you along the way to achieving FI and post FI is, is about having, like you said, perhaps it's a side hustle, perhaps you find the work meaningful for you and it may or may not pay you. But these are the options and these are the flexibility. And if you write this down and you give yourself a little bit of a plan and I mean, what's realistic for a lot of us, probably five years out is all we can sort of realistically see unless we're looking at, you know, with children, you've probably got a longer term horizon for what their plans are if they're still in school and things like that. But for a lot of us, it's kind of five years out. And even at that point, is your job secure enough for five years? Or, you know, is it, are your investments in the market? Do you feel comfortable with them? Have you built that plan properly? Right. So there's so much to unpack here. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting discussion because not enough people spend enough time understanding, like you said, you know, the macro and the micro of the risks that are involved, whether it's external that you can't control or ones that you can control. So it's probably a good thing for a lot of us to, to just to put consider. some pen to paper. And then, you know, like most of us are used to doing our annual kind of reassessment, setting new goals for the next uh, year or decade, whatever it was this year in 2020. And then these crazy things like pandemics come along and make us reassess that as well. So yeah, I think for yeah. people in the accumulation phase, don't just look at uh, your savings rate and your accumulation. Think about it in a, in a bigger scope, right? Keep your, your situational awareness seeing everything. Yeah, there's no better time than being self-isolated during a global pandemic to, <laughs> to really, really do some personal, insightful thinking about not only what your future plans may hold, but also how you're going to manage some of the risks as you're on that path. And then rest assured, you, as you said, as, as you approach financial independence, whatever that means to you, there are some additional risk mitigation strategies that also have to come in. So, so we always need to be thinking about risk, but this time right now, where 2020 is starting to feel like it's already been a decade, it's been about two, <laughs> one, three months into it, um, this is a great time to think about that. And we don't have to dwell on risk, but we have to consider it carefully and understand how we're going to mitigate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, Shout out to um, the Collective Arts, which is a collaboration brewing in Ontario. Life in the Clouds was quite a pleasant dry hopped IPA. I know the Tiger Shark was tasty for the accountant because uh, that's Always probably, is. probably our favorite beer. Not that we should say we have favorites, but it might be a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a Diet Pepsi and it was last Wednesday at the Diet Pepsi plant it was a particularly great vintage. So I'm, I'm fine. That's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Good. We knew that was good a good vintage. One. That's good. Well, I know there's been a, I just got an update email about uh, Camp Mustache Toronto 2020 today, and they're still on the fence. They haven't canceled it officially. Uh, so listeners that are interested in the event, please go check out the Camp Mustache Toronto uh, website. We'll put the link in the show notes because the accountant and I had a fantastic time last year because you are not going to meet a better group of people in Canada. And we actually had quite a few Americans that traveled up to the camp, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, we did. Like you said earlier, huge age range. Everyone was welcome. Uh, we really had a good time and hopefully that goes on again. I don't know if we'll be able to get out to Ontario, but uh, yeah, hopefully we'll all <laughs> make it through this and uh, be a little more introspective. Maybe that's the way to put it, hey, Peter? Yeah, great. And it was great to uh, talk to you guys. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat and uh, uh, all the best. Everybody hunker down and stay safe. 
Yeah, well, we really appreciate you coming on the show. We have talked about this for a while. And uh, just a reminder for the listeners, they can find you at professorfire.com. You've written a few blogs there. And uh, social media, are you active on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anything? Yeah, Professor Fire blog is is my Twitter handle, so check me out there. I'm not a huge frequent uh, poster on my blog, but uh, I talk about uh, not only financial independence topics, but my last big series was on habits and systems for 2020 and not goals. And in retrospect, <laughs> not, not having a lot of goals for 2020, but focusing on the habits and systems that could give rise to good outcomes is, has probably served me pretty well. That's probably a good place to be. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Peter. We'll uh, we'll chat with you again soon. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers.